The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Our next guest, Clay Lowry, is the Managing Director of Rock Creek Global Advisors based in Washington, D.C. Mr. Lowry previously was the Assistant Secretary for International Affairs at the U.S. Treasury Department from 2005 to 2009. He also chaired the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. Now, this is the committee that takes a look at international mergers and acquisitions that may or may not affect national security interests. Clay Lowry, thank you very much for being with us. First, uh, tell us uh, what you're telling your clients, if you don't mind, because you advise multinationals as well as financial institutions and investors. What are you telling them about the on-again, off-again, on-again trade dispute, trade tariff dispute, and confrontation between the United States and China? Well, thanks for having me. And uh, we've, uh, the essential thing that we've been telling people is to keep your car seats buckled because, and you see it every day. I mean, there's it's slightly different every day about um, how we're how the administration and, to that matter, the Chinese are retaliating. Uh, how each of that is going to to work, and so this is actually just increased volatility. Um, we see that in in, in the markets, which. Um, are not necessarily about the clients I have, but um, but you see that also in just kind of how are sales going to be done, how is investment and trade flows going to be affected, and all of this right now is there's a lot of uncertainty, and so that's all we've just basically been saying is just prepare for more uncertainty, and I think that you see that with even the rhetoric coming out of the White House, it kind of changes a little bit every other day, and so that's kind of there, there's nothing else to prepare for outside of uncertainty because that's what you have. All right, Clay. So our seatbelts are buckled. We are duly prepared. Uh, what I would want to know from you, you uh, were formerly the Assistant Secretary for International Affairs at the U.S. Treasury Department. I'm wondering, can you offer us any insight into the mechanics of imposing tariffs and what that would uh, entail so that we can have a better sense of what would have to happen for some of the uh, proposals to be made a reality? Well, to impose tariffs, I mean, they've, they've basically outlined, the administration, that is, has outlined what they would like to do in tariffs. There's going to be a public comment period. Um, and if they decide to go forward with these tariffs, and they, you know, I assume that they will listen to public comment. Um, and uh, they're obviously, they say that they're trying to also have negotiations with the Chinese. Uh, but if they put the tariffs on, then they basically, it will be a tax, I mean, on imports from China on specific items. Uh, they've outlined over 1,300 items that they would put a tax on. 
And uh, once they do that, when they start coming over the border, they will have to put a du- uh, they have to pay a duty, the importer, and at least economically speaking, the importer would pass that on as it goes down the line. Presumably, that would either affect businesses or consumers um, on those products that actually receive that tax. Clay Lowry, what about the importation of Chinese investment dollars into the United yeah. States? No, that, thank you for the, that. Um, so that one is a little more uncertain. So they, um, in the president's memorandum basically outlining this, they said that they were going to give the Treasury Department 60 days to kind of report back on how they would like to do see investment restrictions. Um, and we assume their investments restrictions. Actually, the words they use in the memorandum are concerns about Chinese investment. So these are not national security concerns. So national security concerns are handled through a different mechanism, which is called CFIUS. Um, this is about um, in, uh, restrictions on specific investments that are outside of national security that the Chinese are making. Now, the the issue here is this is not something the United States has really done much of. In fact, I can't remember an example in which we have done it outside of maybe if it's like a uh, kind of a rogue regime like Iran or something like that. So because of that, I think it's become uh, the Treasury Department and others in the administration are, are working on what are the, how do you do this? What's the authority you use? Um, uh, what are the legal implications if you use uh, various authorities? Uh, this is very different than tariffs because tariffs we've, we've done throughout our history. Investment restrictions is a very different uh, mechanism. Do you get the sense, based on your conversations with people who are in the administration or in the Treasury Department, uh, that President Trump has a lot of company in his sort of declarations of, of and proposals for the tariffs. Uh, do you mean uh, support? Yeah, from, uh, from, from, from people who are inside the administration, from people who are sort of uh, career people and see this as possibly helping uh, sort of even the playing field. So I, I I do think, I think actually, I mean, go beyond the administration. I think that the, if you talk to a lot of uh, people in Congress within the administration, even the business community and uh, the kind of academic think tank community, I think that a lot of them would say that they have a lot of sympathy for what President Trump is trying to do. They believe that China has been uh, a poor actor in a number of areas on trade and investment. And so um, there may need to be some, there's a desire for some sort of a, a more dramatic action. That being said, I think that you would also hear from a lot of people that that there's two major missing elements to what the, the president's tried to do. First is um, there doesn't seem to be a strategy. What is it you want to achieve? Is it, is it, I mean, the president talks about lowering the trade deficit. That's kind of a, a strange uh, way to look at things. Is the idea to basically we want more market access for China? We want China to treat more fairly. What is it exactly they want to achieve? I think the Chinese are confused by that, but I actually think that, by the way, the business community is totally confused by that. And then secondly um, is it would have made more sense, and in fact, you saw Larry Kudlow even saying this this morning, let's try to build a coalition around this. There's a number of countries around the world who are concerned about how China has been interacting on trade and investment. But the administration, which was warned about this over and over and over again, go out and build a coalition. There are others that are with you. What did they do instead? 
they attacked those same countries on steel and uh, and aluminum tariffs, which have which are supposed to be about national security, and yet they attack the countries that actually help us on national security. And then secondly, they didn't go around building a coalition against China so that China got the message. It wasn't just the United States that had a problem with China. It was actually the international community writ large. And for whatever reason, the administration decided not to take those, those tactics. But maybe, maybe, that, maybe given what you saw from Larry Kudlow, maybe he's deciding that this is maybe they need to make a small change in how they're trying to approach the president's strategy. Clay Lowry, thank you so much for being with us. Clay Lowry, Managing Director at Rock Creek Global Advisors, former Assistant Secretary for International Affairs at the U.S. Treasury Department. In an era when electronic trading is moving into everything from bonds to currencies, Goldman Sachs has been steadily trying to chart out a new identity for itself. And the latest is a move into commercial banking, uh, a territory frankly, dominated by J.P. Morgan and other uh, behemoth banks. Joining us now to talk about that is Brian Kleinhansel. He's an equity research analyst and managing director at Keefe, Briette and Woods in New York. Brian, thank you so much for being with us. So I just first want to get a sense of what Goldman Sachs is trying to do with commercial banking and what's attractive to the bank about this business. Yeah, thanks for having me. So yeah, what Goldman's looking to do is really to deepen the relationships that they have with their corporate clients already. So the relationship that they have today is more from an advisory perspective when you think about advising on potential M&A. Um, and what they're trying to do now is be more of a bank to these corporate clients. By that, I mean looking to do more lending with these corporate clients, um, as well as capturing deposits that these corporations may have. So they really are trying to build out the bank around this existing relationship. So uh, one question is, why? I mean, the other banks have such a toehold into this, and notoriously lending is a capital-intensive business that kind of moves away from the M&A and the investment banking that Goldman Sachs is known for. Yeah, that's a good question. We also have as well. I mean, really, at the point of time that this, what Goldman laid out was a strategy to increase revenues. It was when, uh, an environment when revenues were challenged. So this is one way to grow revenues, but it is a very competitive um, industry overall in commercial banking. It's an area where Goldman Sachs themselves have little history relative to the other big banks that kind of dominate this space. So it is an area where you could potentially see incremental revenues come through. It's just, it's going to be a very hard hard fought to win those type of revenues. So the other thing it does, it helps um, act as a ballast relative to the trading business. Volatility over the last five years has been fairly low. Um, so this is an area we could see recurring revenues come from with less volatility than you do in the trading business. So you could see how it could make sense longer term. It's just we do question their ability to execute on the strategy long term. Brian, can you speak specifically about David Solomon and what he brings to this strategy? Well, he does have a background in a lot of the areas. So he comes up through the advisory side in the investment bank. So he does have a lot of relationships with the senior executives at these corporations um, where it fails to see there's a 
bridge right now is that a lot of these decisions are made by treasurers, so we'll have to see if he can bridge that gap between the CEO down to the treasurer. Um, but he does have a background within the investment bank and have the relationships with the corporations themselves. So that's a positive. And then a lot of the other new strategies, he does have a foot in a lot of those strategies, whether it was the Marcus Initiative, which is their kind of retail consumer lending platform. So he's been more of a key proponent for that platform. So a lot of the areas where the bank has been trying to grow outside of the traditional trading um, channels are areas that he's either helped to develop or where he's worked previously. So he does have a, you know, a good background in these businesses. You know, Brian, I'm struck by the fact that Goldman Sachs is expanding into new territories, whether it's the Marcus platform that focuses on consumer lending or whether it's commercial banking. And this sort of is echoed by Jamie Dimon over at J.P. Morgan with the investor letter that he uh, put out, which basically says we're expanding everywhere. Anywhere you can go, we want to be there. Is there a concern at all on behalf of analysts like yourself that some of these banks are perhaps moving outside their wheelhouse and getting too diffuse and possibly could increase the risks of underperforming more broadly as they expand. Yeah, I mean, we think there is. I think Goldman's a fairly good example of expanding into the consumer business at a period where you've had generally what we consider benign credit conditions, meaning that you're not taking a lot of losses on the loans that you're making in the consumer business. Um, but that's been a fairly you know, five years of low losses, that could change at any point in time. And if you don't have a history in that business, it could all of a sudden become very challenged to manage credit, manage earnings, manage revenues in those businesses. So it does seem to be what we would call late cycle growth in the consumer business. It does raise yellow flags at this point, not necessarily red flags to us and to investors, but it is an area where you're trying to grow. um, And we would argue that they're trying to grow aggressively in an area where there is little history for the company. So, I mean, certainly is a yellow flag at this point in time. Just a a quick point, uh, Brian, that if we see an increase in interest rates, won't this help the bond trading business? And in a sense, Goldman Sachs looking to expand in areas that maybe it is a little too late to the party and maybe just focus on what it does best and wait for the cycle to turn. Yeah, I mean, it certainly could. So a lot of the revenues that are generated in the bond trading business are based on the steepness of the yield curve. So as long as the long end keeps moving with the short-term rates, and that's generally a positive for the trading business. It also could mean, I think we want from a corporation perspective is, are they committed to this business? And that's exactly to your point. If you see a big pickup in trading revenues, are they going to still want to maintain these lending relationships and this commercial banking relationship longer term, or will they simply switch back to being more focused on trading? I think at this point in time, the fact that they really haven't built out the commercial bank, I think it's going to be a challenge for them to grow commercial banking clients as a result. And I think that's the risk. And I think all the corporations will be asking the same question is, you know, how wedded are you to this business that you want to take our um, business from us? I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, Brian Klein-Hansel is uh, equity research analyst for Keefe, Briette and Woods speaking about Goldman Sachs. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Right now, I want to turn our attention to Hugh Sun, Bloomberg Finance reporter. Uh, he just wrote a phenomenal story for Bloomberg Markets Magazine, which we're going to get to in a second. But uh, before we go there, Hugh, I know you've got uh, deep knowledge of J.P. Morgan. And given the fact that they just had their annual meeting and released their annual letter to shareholders, you know, what's your big takeaway for what J.P. Morgan's <clears throat> goal is in the year ahead? I mean, this solidifies. Um, thank you for having me. This solidifies um, something that I've been. It's been sort of coalescing in the back of my mind for a little while now, which is, um, you know, they're they're the aggressors in this space. Um, so, for an example, um, J.P. Morgan. You know, they gave some comments about what they were going to do with um, online brokerage, and um, this was on their investor day, February twenty seventh. And all of a sudden, you see Charles Schwab and and a, a few other. Um, sort of e-broking e uh, stocks um, move up by 5%. And that's because the markets interpreted that they weren't going to aggressively go into, um, you know, uh, free uh, online robo-advising. Just an ex one example of, you know, of their impact in the market. So wherever you look in finance, they are the aggressors, whether it's deposits, fixed income, credit cards, trust advisory, I could go on and on. And in my mind, what was coalescing is just sort of this idea that they are kind of becoming the Amazon uh, uh, of, of finance. Um, okay, they, they want to be the Amazon of finance. Uh, can we say that there are a variety of competitors who might have a different view about this? Um, in the banking space? Well, I mean, there or are other large the, banks. Like I mean, there's Citibank, Wells there's Wells Fargo, Morgan there's Stanley. Bank of America, Morgan Stanley done very well with their wealth management and division. How I mean, about Goldman Sachs, which is now trying to get into commercial yeah. banking? The, the only, I bring yeah. it up only because, you know, we've heard before about the one-stop shop. Absolutely. And, and you should be skeptical, sure. Yeah. And, you know, I note the one of the quotes from uh, Jamie Dimon is talking about bureaucracy, yeah. right? And he's not a, seemingly not a fan of bureaucracy. And, I mean, I got to say, you ever hear anybody say that they are a fan of bureaucracy, that they think it's just wonderful and great and it helps build <laughs> no, wonderful businesses? Well, how are you going to manage all these wonderful new initiatives if you don't have a bureaucracy that can actually execute? Yeah, I mean, so lot, lots of good points. I, I would say there's a reason why um, other other member other financial players are watching J.P. Morgan, and 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 it stems from a lot of the advantage they have. They have the highest ROE. They have most deposits. Um, they have Jamie Dimon, who's you know, who doesn't he doesn't deliberate before entering markets aggressively at times, as much as others. Um, as an analyst talked to me, uh, relayed to me, you know, he says other other banks are happy to let JP Morgan go first in some instances. And so, you know, um, whether or not, you know, the other the other banks, it's not as though they're going to go away. Yeah. But the, JP Morgan, if you look at, you know, if you if you read the letter, they see opportunity everywhere, even in places they're, they're already number one. Well, of course what, what does that tell you? 
That tells me that they want to rally their troops and have some uh, ambition uh, as they plow forward and take over the world. I, I do want to I do want to get a sense, though, you know, they have broad ambitions in China or Asia more broadly. They have broad ambitions even in fixed income currencies and commodities uh, in wealth management. They want to manage money for very rich people who doesn't. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about some more fundamental challenges that J.P. Morgan faces along with the rest of the banks. And this goes to really what you wrote about uh, in the Bloomberg Markets article, which is the technological infrastructure of these banks is becoming increasingly crucial. And in that race, who's winning? So, yeah, look, I mean, that, the story we wrote, um, you know, sort of an epic tale um, and it's online right now about the arms technological arms race in, you know, arguably the most iconic trading market um, uh, in the world, which is the stock market. Um, this is another instance in which the advantages of scale become greater and greater over time. Uh, and, and one reason why p- people are concerned about JP Morgan's entry into the space. Um, when you have, when you have a leading, you know, sort of, sort of top, the, the thing that's said is that only people in the top three in equities make any money. Why is that? That's because if you, if you're not in the top three, you're essentially subsidizing the business. And in order to spend enough money, uh, invest enough money on technology that remain current, um, you need to be making a lot of money. And if you're not in the top three, you're, you're essentially not clearing the hurdle to make enough money to invest to be relevant tomorrow. And that's what you've seen happen to a lot of players. Top players like Credit Suisse, who was maybe number two or number one just a few years ago, fallen a lot since then. Um, JV Morgan is, has you know, grown by leaps and bounds um, in this space. You know, Goldman Sachs was number one just a few years ago. They had $13 billion in, in equities uh, revenue in 2009, I want to say, a high watermark. This last year, they had about half of that. What are Jamie Dimon's non-JP Morgan Chase ambitions? You know, I mean, every time he 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 go he rattles off uh, these long you know letters about uh, what the United States should do. Um, you know, you, you have to think and ask yourself: Does this guy eventually want to be president? And um, you know, he said on the record, you know, look, I I I'd love to be president. It's never going to happen. I'm not going to run. And so, you know, you, you think he's going to be involved in some way in, in the public uh, discussion because he seems to be, and it seems to be genuine on some level, that he's passionate about these big picture problems that, that the country faces. So uh, just just moving forward with, with respect to the technological arms race, um, do you have a sense of who's winning? Yeah, look, so J.P. Morgan, um, in many ways, it's, it's a three-way race between J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley has for the past few years, been number one because they have this lineage um, in essentially the type of technology, the type of trading that has become in vogue. As you know, quants, uh, quant hedge funds are really the only uh, um, asset class taking in tons and tons of money in the past few years. Two Sigma, Rentech, those guys have just amazing track records. Um, and so Morgan Stanley was best positioned for that. And uh, J.P. Morgan came in a few years ago, decided to make a huge investment. You know, people talk about J.P. Morgan like they're the army. You know, when they want to invest, they're going to do so and come in guns blazing. And then, you know, Goldman Sachs never count Goldman Sachs out, right? Yeah. Those guys are, you know, are, are, are devious. And, and when they decide to um, turn around and, 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 and strategically shift, they're going to commit to it 100%. And so between those three, they're all making huge strides right now. Uh, it's Morgan Stanley and J.P. Morgan, who you are priming with if you are a quant hedge fund. 
Thanks very much for being with us. Uh, Hugh Son, our finance reporter for Bloomberg News. You can follow Hugh on Twitter at Hugh underscore Son, S-O-N. Peter Lynch, a famed investor from Fidelity, whose book uh, One Up on Wall Street taught investors about something called invest in what you know. Sir John Templeton, a famed investor, described the maximum point of pessimism as something as a psychological ally in his investing thesis. Here to help us talk a little bit more about these topics and how to apply them to your portfolio and to making money, or rather not losing money is Cole Smead. He is managing director and co-portfolio manager of Smead Capital Management. They are based in Seattle. He helps to manage more than $2.2 billion of customer assets. Cole, thank you very much for being with us. Maybe just draw on both of those famed investors and their description of how to use what some might describe as common sense without common emotion when it comes to investing. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, and, and Lynch and, and Templeton are, you know, well thought of, but I, there are many other investors that have applied, um, to your point, Tim, uh, good psychological discipline uh, in investing. Um, the, the most common thing uh, we would say as a firm, or I would say it as, as, uh, as uh, someone that, that works in this field, um, you have to be willing to do something different. So, you know, even if you, as Lynch said, you, you know, you invest in what you know, um, you want to get a good price, and that usually has to be something different. So, um, so it, it's the, the beauty of it today is, in many ways, the field is just as new as it's ever been because of what most people think are the roadblocks to be a successful stock picker, as Templeton and Lynch were. Okay, so let's talk about why you think it's successful or it's a good time to be a, a stock picker, despite some of the roadblocks. What are you looking yeah, at? Yeah, no, it's a great, great question, Lisa. Um, I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a shameless PIM plug in here. I was listening to the surveillance. I think this was about six, seven weeks ago. PIM, you'd recommended a book by the title. Uh, it was called The Heart of the Matter. Okay, and you talked about kind of the risks the doctors had taken in the in the field in the study of the heart. And I read it, and it was a great book. I Appreciate the recommendation, but uh, one thing that I pulled out of it, there's a great picture of today. In, in the 18th century, one, of, one big problem was when people get aneurysms, how to deal with those. In the 18th century, up until about 1780, we dealt with those by two ways. We either, um, one, bloodlet, or two, if it was an uh, aneurysm you got in your leg, we just, you know, we would effectively cut off your leg. We'd amputate it. And that same thing is going on in the investing field today. For example, we are bloodletting. Um, bloodletting was done to reduce pressure and effectively um, reduce workload. Welcome to passive investing as it's practiced. It doesn't mean it's improving the, the underlying patient's health, but it's accepted, much like bloodletting was in the 18th century. The other thing that we're doing today is institutions have cut themselves off from public equities altogether. I call it institutional amputation. The question, though, is, is it helping the underlying investor to meet their needs or the institution to meet their goals? And, and it doesn't spell as though it is. Well, Cole, all right. First of all, thanks thanks for the, the comment about the book, and I'll give you a couple others. The Heart Healers uh, is uh, another great book by James Forrester. Uh, the other book, The Matter of the Heart, is uh, by Thomas Morris. And one of the things that I took take away from both of those books is we're talking about people 
who are mavericks and misfits because Correct. they are willing to do something and to behave in a way that is not conventional because they are willing to take risks that then result in some empirical response. In other words, it's tested in the real world. And, you know, Correct. we like to say they eat their own, you know, cooking. In, in your case, it's Mead Capital. What are you people doing right now, perhaps, to take advantage of all this volatility and the downtrend that we're seeing recently in stocks? Sure. So, so to, uh, I call it, what, what I, I caveat this under is I, I, I put it under the heading of how can we improve the health of the underlying patient, or as John Hunter did with aneurysms, how can we improve the quality of life? So, for example, um, if bloodletting is what some people would do, let's examine bloodletting today. In effect, bloodletting is nothing bigger than a big tech bet. Okay, if big tech does not do well for blood letters, returns will be, be very poor. So there's kind of two risks. One, that they could do poorly in returns uh, in, in those big cap tech stocks that are well-liked, well-adored, well-followed, well-covered by the street, and something that is not unique. As you pointed out, it's not different. Um, but the flip side would be that you'd have to be asking for a greater encore than they've just had. The problem is, if you look statistically speaking, um, you know, they've had quite a great run, and the question is, how, how often does that happen? You know, these things are cycles. Humans are humans. So I, I'd say from, from that context, it just doesn't look like it's improving the underlying health of the patient or the quality of life versus, hey, let's go into places like retail and media, which is getting excoriated in this environment, um, despite uh, the volatility you mentioned. In other words, there's merit there. There's, there's, there's returns that could be had, but you would have to be willing to not bloodlet in this market environment, which, as we can see, you know, the, the flows are just horridly uh, the opposite way. They, people want to bloodlet, and the question is, how often does everybody want to do something? Does it benefit the underlying client? Cole, I want to push back a little bit because the underlying sure. patient, frankly, has done brilliantly by investing in ETFs and passive funds uh, that sure. track equities and, and risk your debt um, over the number of years. So I'm just trying to figure out, you know, how do you convince people that now is different when, you know, frankly, active managers have been saying that for years? Yeah, well, one way you can track this is Dalbard uh, produces studies looking at what does the active investor do versus what did the passive investor do over the same time periods. And the longer the time period, Dalbar's work shows that the active investor won. When, and that, what they're tracking is what did the underlying client do, not necessarily what the funds did. In other words, if they poured in the top, they pulled out the low, that affects the investor return. Um, so, so the longer, according to Dalbar's study, the longer the duration of the investor the more alpha they gained over being a past investor when they chose to be active. Okay, so we work in long duration time periods. I know no one that is trying to invest for the next three years to fulfill their needs of their life. Uh, we're talking 10, 20, 30, you know, in my case, God willing, 50 plus years. Um, but I say that because, you know, this idea that, um, you know, oh, it's, for example, Dalbar studies show that it's worked better to be a passive investor the last three years. So my question is, is that just a placebo effect? The old saying is, do not confuse, uh, uh, do not confuse brains with a bull market. And I would argue, much like you said, it's been great returns. The only problem is, we're in a bull market. What does a tough market look like? And the question is, is the bloodletting going to be the appropriate thing for people to do in a terrible market? Cole Smead, thank you so much for being with us. Cole Smead, Managing Director and Co-Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management with $2.2 billion under management, making the case for active uh, investors.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.